Hi, this is Mark Raven. Welcome to episode 274 of Lean Blog Audio. This is a post from May 16th, 2019. It's titled, When Old Habits and Old Science No Longer Make Sense, Evidence versus Habit in Medicine and Lean. If you missed my podcast with my interview with Dr. Rob Hackett from Australia, um, you might want to go check that out. You can find that in my podcast series called Lean Blog Interviews. It's episode 341. You can also find that by going to leanblog.org slash 341. I mean, you can also find a link to that by going to the blog post for this episode of Lean Blog Audio by going to leanblog.org slash audio 274. Now, after meeting Rob and corresponding over the past few weeks about various patient safety issues, one topic that keeps coming up is the force of habit. I find it really interesting when scientific facts and truth get superseded by new evidence. You know, science isn't supposed to be stubborn. It's okay to cast aside the old status quo when we learn something new. And, you know, the flat earth crowd could maybe uh, pay attention to that. But there are a lot of these themes also in a book I've been reading called the Case Against Sugar. It's written by uh, an investigative journalist, um, Gary Tobbs. And, and some of the um, established science or, or what seems to be established truth about low-fat diets is um, now being challenged. It might not really be true. As many dietary experts and, and the government pushed low-fat diets since the 1970s, obesity has gone up dramatically. So maybe we have a more complicated systems issue where some scientists are quite certain that eating sugar leads to our body converting it to fat. When the makers of processed foods remove fat, then they end up adding sugar, which then gets turned into, well, fat. So some say it's more complicated than saying a calorie is a calorie. Maybe our body treats a sugar calorie different than a fat calorie. Taubus writes in his book about science and progress, History is critical to understanding science and how it progresses. In many disciplines, uh, in many scientific disciplines, physics, for example, the science is taught with the history attached. Students learn not only what is believed to be true and which conjectures have fallen by the wayside, but on the basis of what experiments and what evidence and by whose authority and ingenuity. The names of the physicists responsible for the advances in understanding, Newton, Einstein, Maxwell, Heisenberg, Planck, Schrodinger, among others, for their work in understanding the quantum nature of the universe and, and many more are as well known as many historical figures in politics and other fields. Medicine today, though, as with related fields such as nutrition, is taught mostly untethered from its history. Students are taught what to believe, but not always the evidence on which these beliefs are based. And so oftentimes the beliefs cannot be questioned. And medical students are not taught, as physics students typically are, to question everything that has not demonstrably survived the trial-by-fire process of rigorous methodical testing. Students of any science need to know why they're being asked to believe a particular idea, or why not, and on what grounds. Without the history of the idea, there's no way to tell, and by implication, no reason to ask. It's end of quote. So let's talk about lean and conjecture. You know, so maybe... Um, the quote-unquote lean community, and that's a phrase I use uh, without fully understanding what it means, uh, people should look at what conjectures about lean have fallen by the wayside, but on the basis of what experience and what evidence, by whose authority and ingenuity. I was at one point taught and sort of believed the idea that you should always start with five S. 
Somebody might have tried to explain why. Some people still say this. But in my mind, that conjecture has proven to be untrue. You know, absolutes like always and never are rarely true in a complicated world. I saw the other day on LinkedIn how somebody was rigidly teaching their students basically to always start with value stream mapping. Not that I think that's a bad idea in a lot of cases, but you know, this person stated a hope that if their students were giving conflicting advice in the future, that they'd say, but that's not what I was taught. So you know, because I was taught this way is not really the best reason to keep doing something any more than saying the standardized work says to. Lean is supposed to be more of a scientific thinking process and less about dogma, or at least that's what I was taught. So let's talk about uh, something back in the medical realm, the bike log book. Uh, Dr. Rob Hackett shared uh, an article with a funny story. Uh, It says, a few years ago, the dean of the School of Business at the University of Leicester, Dr. Zoe Radnor, tried to understand the reasons for the bicycle book that she discovered in an English hospital she was studying. All staff who arrived at work by bicycle routinely signed a register book at the front door. Hundreds of these registers, once full, had been collected and stored for decades in clearly marked boxes. Why, Professor Radnor asked, nobody knew. Well, the answer took some sleuthing. The first book's data from World War II, when rationing of fuel was the rule of the day, and when any staff had commuted by bicycle, uh, thereby earned extra food ration credits for saving on gas. Now, three quarters of a century later, the bicycle book process remained alive and well embedded in the organization's brainstem, not its cortex. It was pure waste. So I I think that's kind of a a funny illustrative story, but at least nobody was harmed by the practice. It's just something that's just wasted time, money, and space. Now, getting into the clinical realm, one thing that Rob shared with me was the the common and old practice of people wearing shoe covers into the operating room. As, As he wrote to me, we still wear shoe covers in theater despite not having used flammable and anesthetic gases since the 1950s before my time. So he shared with me an article that discusses this, and uh, I'll read part of it. It talks about conduct in the operating room, shoe covers, masks, caps, gowns, and gloves. It says, oh, our conduct determines procedures that are ritualistic with no scientific basis and activities that have been studied extensively and are of paramount importance in preventing transmission of infection in the operating field. The use of shoe covers is a ritual from the era of flammable anesthetic gases. Because a spark from static electricity potentially could cause an explosion, specially designed non-conductive shoes that did not conduct an electric current were made for operating room personnel. For the visitor without special non-conductive shoes, shoe covers were available. Ether and cyclopropane especially were inflammable. Occasional explosions in the operating room were devastating events. By the mid-1970s, while explosive anesthetic gases were a thing of the past, Shoe covers remained part of the accoutrement of the surgeon, along with caps and masks. However, current evidence suggests that the use of shoe covers may actually enhance the transmission of bacteria from the soles of one's shoes to the surgical wound. This is likely to occur, especially if one does not wash one's hands after putting on the shoe covers. So using the shoe covers in in more simple language might actually increase the spread of bacteria and the risk of infection. So, you know, again, if, if the shoes with the anti-static strap on the bottom aren't needed, um, then we, we don't need them for infection control? Well, I, some don't believe this. You know, some people 
it seems. Um, I, I see them in bathrooms. I never use them. Um, they use disposable paper toilet seat covers. But that habit doesn't pre prevent the transmission of germs, as an article I've linked to suggests. The paper says, seat covers do not stop germs, and you're not likely to catch an infection from a toilet anyway. So how many people have this habit with the belief that it's helpful? The bigger germ transmission risk is what they call the plume that comes from flushing a toilet that doesn't have a lid to close over it. Closing the lid when there is one is probably a better habit. And just recently, I'll add, you know, I was in a hotel um, that had a, a toilet that flushed so aggressively, it really felt like it was, uh, I hate to say, splashing all over. So I learned, you know, to close the lid before flushing. Uh, again, probably a good idea. There's another article um, that Rob Hackett sent me that talks about other practices. Um, there, there's a, a link to the PDF in the blog post. Again, you can go to leanblog.org slash audio 274. The title of that article is Behaviors and Rituals in the Operating Room Theater. It says, rituals are described as any action performed according to custom without understanding the reasons why it is being practiced. So I wonder, is, is your practice of lean based on science, reasons, or ritual? Uh, it, it says uh, in the article, talking about footwear, uh, the floor surface of the operating theater should be kept clean, but the effect this has on infection rates remains uncertain. Studies of bacterial contamination of the operating theater corridor floors indicate that a change of footwear should occur as far from the operating theater as possible. Well-fitting footwear with impervious soles should be worn and regularly cleaned to remove splashes of blood and body fluid. All footwear should be cleaned after every use, and procedures should be in place to ensure that this is undertaken at the end of every session. Humphreys et al. illustrated that the use of plastic overshoes led to a significant increase in floor colony counts rather than a decrease. Carter also showed that hands become contaminated when overshoes would put on or remove. So the recommendation is special footwear should be worn in the operating department and regularly cleaned. The practice of wearing plastic overshoes should cease. So the last time I was in an operating room setting a lot, I was taught their standardized work and this include putting on shoe covers. I was taught to take off the shoe covers and to throw them away when leaving the surgical area. But I saw many, if not most staff, wearing the covers out and about throughout the hospital and not stopping to replace them when coming back into the surgical area. I mean, these aren't magical germ repellents, these, these shoe covers. I mean, this is like the one time I saw a subway employee cough onto their gloves and then they were about to go resume making the sandwich while I spoke up and asked him to change gloves. Maybe the operating rooms should be more like uh, most any building in Japan where you remove your outside footwear and put on slippers or plastic shoes to wear indoors. Are operating rooms being managed by habit or science? It says in the article uh, that Redfern describes a study in which only 12% of practitioners based infection control practice in the operating theater on evidence. There are other practices that seem to be at least somewhat debunked in the article. Recommendations for new practice or further research include the following. Not having patients remove clothing for procedures like cataract removal. The article says it's the most illogical of rituals and, and Spock, I guess uh, Spock from Star Trek would like that. Not making patients wear a hat to cover their hair during surgery. That's probably not, not necessary. 
no longer having patients remove rings or jewelry unless they are in the operative or anesthetic field. Stop shaving parts of the patient other than the area to be incised. And it says depilatory cream is better than razors or clippers. Don't have patients take a pre-op chlorhexidine shower. There's no need to do more than a two-minute hand wash. An alcohol hand rub is an acceptable alternative to repeated washing. It says alcohol solutions are preferred to aqueous solutions for skin preparation, but it's important to allow the alcohol to dry after application and before the use of electrocautery. And use single-use bottles to prevent contamination. It also says masks should be worn for the protection of the wearer. However, there is insignificant evidence to support the continued wearing of masks to prevent wound infection, with the exception of prosthetic implant operations. So going back to Rob's question of names on surgical caps and the related controversy over cloth caps versus disposable bouffant caps, it says, there is no need for non-scrubbed staff members of the operating team to wear disposable headgear. However, common sense dictates that hair should be kept clean and out of the way. Well, that would have applied to me when I was around the operating rooms, like literally being outside the rooms, not inside during surgery, but they had me wear a bouffant cap. Other recommendations, it says wedding rings can be worn, although surgeons may be advised to remove these when working with metal prostheses. There's no need to put on a cover jacket over surgical attire when leaving the theater area. The practice of wearing plastic overshoes should cease. Adhesive mats on the floor intended to reduce infections may actually, quote, become a reservoir and source of contamination and shouldn't be used. So again, that article is an exhaustive study. But for those of you in hospitals every day, I wonder which practices are followed and how much evidence-based care there is and how much of it is just habit. And how would you answer those questions about your lean practices? If you'd like to read the article or if you'd like to comment, I invite you to come to leanblog.org audio 274.